What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast, Season 3, Episode 3. My name is Corey Wong. I am your host, and I'm feeling good today. I practiced more than I have in the last few years leading up to a recording session that I had this last Sunday. I'm doing a collaborative album with uh, another band, actually, Corey Wong and this other band. We're doing an album that we're putting out later this year. I'll keep it elusive and mysterious, and you'll find out more later. But I had to practice a lot for this session. It was really fun. So my chops are feeling tight right now. I feel really good. And imagine that. I practiced a lot, and now I feel like I'm able to play the things that I want to play. And what my brain is telling my hands to do, my hands are doing it. Wow. It might sound oversimplified, but um, I have found that the more I practice, the better I sound. How about that? Today, we've got Peter Frampton on the show. Now, of course, most of you know, Peter Frampton is a ledge amongst ledges. A ledge on top of ledges. That's how legendary he is. He's got the best-selling live album of all time, 1976's Frampton Comes Alive. And that's actually pretty awesome. His biggest album is a live album. That's kind of cool. I can't think of a lot of other acts that are like that, where a live album is their biggest album. I know Benson had a huge one live in L.A. and Hollywood. Anyways, Frampton Comes Alive, incredible record. He was in the teen heartthrob band The Herd. He was in a band called Humble Pie for a while, and he's done so many other things. He starred in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band movie. He played guitar on Grease. That's pretty awesome. He's been a character in The Simpsons, Family Guy. And get this, he went to high school with David Bowie. That's amazing. We talk about it in the interview and also how, you know, they helped each other through tough times and how one of the biggest parts of his career, one of the most fulfilling things of his career. Well, you know what? I'm not going to spoil it. That's my little teaser. I'll let him tell it because it's better than when I say it. So I'm not going to give you any more teasers. Let's hit it. Peter Frampton. You guys hip to DistroKid yet? It is the easiest, fastest, and cheapest way to get your music onto streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, pretty much anywhere else that people consume music. You can get an account starting at $19.99 per year. Per year, you get unlimited uploads and you keep 100% of your earnings. 100%. So for somebody like me, I put out I put out a lot of albums last year. It was still just one annual price, no matter how many albums I have up. And I keep 100% of the earnings that come in. There's a lot of reasons I love DistroKid, but the ones I want to highlight here are the Teams feature. So basically, I can assign a percentage of royalties to go to any of my collaborators, however we work it out, or my managers work with their managers, and we work out you know whatever percentage split. My percentage goes to me, and then DistroKid gives the other percentage to the other collaborator or artist. It works amazing, and neither one of us as artists needs to handle the accounting. DistroKid just does it for us. Set! If you'd like to give them a try, use my VIP link to get 30% off your first year of DistroKid membership, distrokid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong. There it is. Let's get to the episode. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. It is 
a treat to have such a legend on the show. Well, it's nice to be with you. I have been a fan of yours for many years, and I've got to say, I was sent your new album, and it is awesome. There's something oh. about an artist who I, you know, I think any artist who's been around for a number of decades, when you're making new albums, I would imagine there's a certain freedom, but there's also a certain expectation that fans have from it. And I was, I, I went into this with totally open ears. And I, of course, I had some preconceived idea of what it might sound like, but I was so blown away by it. I, I planned on kind of, oh, I'm going to listen through one or two tracks and skim the others and then interview Peter. I listen, I ended up listening straight down to the entire thing and I was blown away by the album. Oh, thank you very much. I, I'm very proud of it and proud of my band. The reason for doing, first of all, we have to go back an album to um, All Blues, uh, which was covers, blues covers, and the um, covers on the instrumental record is that so that I could record as much as possible in the shortest space of time without having to write anything because of my muscle disease. I had, I still have no idea when, you know, uh, things are going to progress to the point where I won't be able to play. So um, I wanted to um, record as much as possible. And this was such a, a great thing to do for me because I started off playing guitar and listening to Hank Marvin and the Shadows in England. And they were pretty much the instrumental Beatles before the Beatles came along. They were so huge. They were Cliff Richard's backup band. And he's like our British Elvis. So I learned every one of their, I still do know, know them all, uh, all those 60s kind of instrumentals with the Fender Strat going through the uh, AC-30. Uh, Vox. <laughs> so um, this was easy, um, but uh, easy project for me, but nerve wracking at the same time, because I'm choosing really well-known songs. Uh, well, most of them are. Um, and so people have, when, you, when you've got your favorite track, you listen to it. And if somebody does another version of it, or sometimes even if it's live, they go, oh, no, no. Uh, the first thing I heard was what I like, you know. So I, I was, I wanted these all to be tributes of the, uh, you know, 150% quality, you know. So that's, that's why I decided to do it with my band, because we basically just finished two summers uh, with Steve Miller. Um, and come right off that, went in, did the blues album. There's another blues album in the can already mixed as well, but we jumped that one and we've gone to the instrumental record. And um, um, as to connect it, um, I'm just very proud of it. Well, it's, it's a really great album. And I love that you didn't just choose, oh, we're going to do instrumental versions of some classic rock songs or some classic standards. You went all across the board. I mean, you've covered stuff, like, isn't it a pity the George Harrison tune was the first one that I went to? And then the Sly and the Family Stone tune. There's a Radiohead tune. It was really fun to hear tunes from so many different eras interpreted in the way that yeah. you decided to to play them and produce them. Yeah, there's there's favorite tracks. I mean, there's um, Avalon, which is, which is coming out. Um, we've just finished the video for that, which is just a band video. Or... None of us together, but we look like sure. we're together. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's the second video. The first one was Reckoner. And um, so it's it's like 
that song, when that album came out, Roxy Music's last studio record, actually, there was something spectacular about that album. That, and every second of that record is, oh, my God, how great this is, and, and gives you goosebumps, you know. It's got this wonderful laid-back feel to it, and his vocals are just killer throughout Brian's vocals. Uh, it became this very important record to me because when I would go from home to home over the years, I would use <laughs> Avalon to EQ my ah. speakers because it was the, it was the best sounding record, one of the best sounding records ever. You know, Bob Clear Mountain, obviously, but it was the the band first and foremost. Um, but incredible players, um, incredible band, incredible engineer. And it became a new high standard for me for recording. So that song has just been with me, as the whole album has. I had to go through, and I didn't know whether I would do Avalon itself, but I did. I went, I went through and I played along with all of them. And Avalon was the one that, that hit me. So, And also I do feel that on that track, um, the sound of my guitar that I got and the way I play it, very under underplayed is the closest I've got to actually the performance of the vocalist, Brian, you know, and I'm, I'm very proud of that, that I, I really kind of got his nuances. But then, you know, with instrumentals, uh, the thing you're lacking for the second verse is, is an interest factor whereby there's no more lyrics. You know, the, 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 the first verse could be the same as the second if you just played the same thing. So throughout each each of the uh, tributes to these great songs, um, I would develop the melody as I went along. And is that kind of your secret to interpreting a vocal tune on the guitar? Yes. I mean, vocalists do it too, you know, um, but they do have the fallback of words. But, I mean, I was working with Hank Marvin on the last instrumental record, The Shadows, actually, for a day, which was my dream come true. And uh, seeing they were the reason that I started playing. We had written this track together, and we got to the last verse. We, would, we were working out what we would do together for the last verse. And Hank said, well, why don't we just add this little trill here and change it up here? And it was like, oh. Yeah, you're Hank Marvin, yeah. <laughs> aren't you? So it was, it was just such a, uh, to have him, it would have been something he would have said to the guys in the shadows if I wasn't there, you know, why don't we do it like this? And I just felt like I was a shadow for the day, you know. Playing with him was was probably, well, playing with, with Hank or playing with George Harrison in the studio, both of them um, mean just as much to me. It's just phenomenal, you know, to be able to play with wow. these guys. Yeah, that sounds incredible. You said you did Reckoner, which is a Radiohead tune. I love Radiohead. Mm -hmm. Okay, Computer is one of my favorite albums of all time. But Reckoner's on In, In Rainbows, and In Rainbows was one that they released digitally, and they said, pay what you want. You can literally take the album right. for free or just pay however much you want. It caused a lot of conversation and maybe a little bit of self-analytics for artists for managers labels on where the industry is at and what it means to buy music or give away music in the modern era how do you feel mm -hmm. about where the business is nowadays obviously it's very different than what it was mm -hmm. in the 70s 80s 90s and even early 2000s 
Well, one has to go with the technology, fortunately sometimes and unfortunately at other times. When they did switch over and all of a sudden, well, Napster started it and then, of course, peer-to-peer. And then, of course, you know, iTunes, uh, which sort of was good, but it, it, it ruined the album because you could buy a separate track. So that, that happened. But then we got used to that. And now you can stream anything from anywhere at any time, day or night. And, you know, if you're successful, you you stream a billion every second, you know. So it's you have to go with that. You know, that's that's what it is. And it's not about an album anymore. I don't think it's for that track that comes in from the Internet from or a chat from your friend, your boyfriend or girlfriend. Hey, Check this out. Check this track out. It comes in. You're still on the line with them. You play it. You listen to it. You go, I like that a lot. That's good. Okay, trash. Um, it's on to the next. That's It's a disposable kind of world we live in musically. Obviously, when you've got someone like Harry right now, um, <laughs> uh, he's the billion, million, trillion dollar streamer, and it, it's taken it to a whole other level. He's kind of like... Now we're fully entwined in this in this technology of streaming. I think he, amongst others, obviously, are pushing it to the limits, and we're seeing how far. Harry, we can go. as in Harry Styles. Styles. Yeah. yeah, I I think I followed one fan site, and my Twitter now is all Harry Styles. So <laughs> I know how big he is. <laughs> yeah, and it's he's good. He's good, but. Um, it, it's just the the streaming platform was just waiting for these bigger artists to come along with a new generation to just take off. And now it's gone to the stratosphere as far as streaming. And and hopefully artists are getting paid. We are getting paid a little bit more along the way. You brought up Harry Styles. I'm going to I'm going to mention I want to go down that road for a second. But I I have one funny as soon as you mentioned his name. I had one interaction with Harry Styles once, and this has nothing to do with our interview, so excuse me. Uh, but since you brought, okay. I'm ready for it. <laughs> I was at I was at a, a wonderful vegan breakfast spot in Los Angeles, and I was there just working on some stuff on my own. Like just, I was in LA working, and I had to go to the bathroom, and I was standing there waiting outside the door, and out comes Harry Styles, and he looks me in the eye and he goes, ah, "Sorry, mate." <laughs> And then he walks away, and I walked in, and uh, it did not smell wonderful. Oh! And <laughs> but I'll tell you what. It was a wonderful lesson for me in we're all human beings. And everybody, That's the right. classic saying of everybody's poop stinks is absolutely true, no matter who you are. So sorry I divulged down that. It, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> and the other thing is... I mean, even even as well as that, it's like you mean he does go. He goes. Yeah, to the absolutely. Okay. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. Sorry, sorry, we went down that road. But with Harry Styles, no, it's okay. It's it's a shitty kind of conversation, but it's okay. I I think when I set this up, you're going to know where I'm going. Harry was a teen heartthrob, part of a band, One Direction, very right. popular, and then started his solo career and found a lot of popularity. Mm-hmm found his own voice, found his own artistic vision in his solo career, maybe similar mm-hmm. to what your career trajectory has been, being a part of the herd and then starting your own thing. Yeah. 
What do you say to somebody like Harry from your experience of going from being in a really popular band to starting your own solo career? Well, he's he's a good looking chap. He's very talented. And therefore, he is eye candy for, for the girls. Um, I mean, I even see shots of Harry's thighs. You know, it's like, oh, my God, I feel sorry for him in a way. But the thing is, he is embracing it. And he's wearing dresses and very, you know, he's he's crossing the gender lines there and and uh, with his his outfits and everything. Uh, I just think that he's doing it right. That my advice to him would be, and, and I think this is what he wants to would probably want to do anyway, is he's got to reinvent himself with every album. And like David Bowie did. And like Madonna copied David <laughs> and, um, and, and and did that too. And if Harry can pull that off, I think he's got an incredibly long career. His music is great. It's not, it, it's deep. So it's, it's not, it's not just poppy songs, you know? So I think that, I think he's got a long career and if he, he seems to be handling it. Okay. And um, I wish him all the best if he needs uh he needs to be talked down at any point. I've got some, you know, I've got some, uh, you know, I've got some medication. <laughs> if he, no, I, no I, he, he really is incredible. <laughs> I, I really appreciate his artistry on stage and off. I think he's really, mm-hmm. really great. And a lot of times I think those kind of artists get written off for a few years because of their mm-hmm. heartthrob. What, I mean, and that's, that's not something that he would put on yeah. himself, I don't think, but that the media and just. It's out yes. of your control in a way. You know, even with even with somebody like John Mayer, who singer songwriter swooner, it's like that that cat's got deep musical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and myself, I mean, it's like to the point where I say this once I realized it many years ago that through going through what I went through, the teeny bopper thing with comes after comes alive came out was that a teeny bopper artist's career is maybe eighteen months, two years then those people grow out of out of you. And there's a new generation coming along to find their Harry Styles, you know, or the new guy. Whereas a musician like John Mayer, um, a great musician, he, he's a musician and a musician's lifespan is a lifetime. It took me a long time to make the transition. Be, um, well, not a long time to make the transition, but it took a long time to build it back after I didn't reinvent myself around the time of the follow-up to Comes Alive. At what point do you do you say, all right, I've established my voice, I've found myself as an artist, I've expressed it to its fullest, I've gotten the most mileage out of what I think I can bring. Part of this conversation, actually, Jacob Collier posed this question to me, and I've been thinking a lot about it since, but how do you not just become a parody of yourself, and when is it time to actually reinvent yourself? I think as long as... As long as you don't repeat yourself mu- musically, it's yeah. it, for me. I'm not. I've never really been into the um, the look. I mean, I was. I got stuck in my own look there for a while because I didn't really care about it. It was the, always about the music. So I think as long as you um, uh, as, as long as you don't repeat yourself, I'm always trying to come up with with things that I haven't done before. Like I did a instead of going out for another tour. You know, I went and did a guitar circus where I had B.B. King was the first person that signed up for me, you know, and came on board. Oh, my goodness. You know, 
what an honor that was. And uh, it, it, it kept going, you know, and we did two of those tours. And then I did just an acoustic tour with one other guitar player and my son opening for us and coming and singing with us and then did an, uh, an acoustic album. Um, which was all all the songs that everybody knows, but sort of the way I would have played them as I was writing them. And now, then a blues album, never done a blues album before. So that's a challenge and that pushes you. I think you've got to push, don't sit on your laurels uh, and, and, and just say, well, I'm a, I'm fine. I'm, I've had this success and, you know, and yeah, that's where you'll stay, buddy, if that's the way you're going to think. No, you've got to constantly push yourself to find something new. It's like, you know, I'm no Picasso, but to use a painter, when, when Picasso got into his blue period, which is arguably one of his most expensive periods, <laughs> and then he stopped and he, and everyone was saying, why have you, why aren't you doing the blue series anymore. He said, I've done that. Why would I want to do it again? And I think that's true of, of most artists that, you know, a lot of people have said to me along the way, why do you bother doing new material? And I'm just like aghast. I said, for me, it's for my own enjoyment. I don't care whether anybody buys it at this point. I just, you know, um, I'm going to do something that makes me feel good as an artist. Uh, and I go back to a painter again. You know, you'll be painting there all week. And then at the end of the week, you just paint over it and start again because it's it. You're not challenging yourself. It's it. You've I've done this before, you know, and musically, I don't even um, keep the ideas that I put down on my little phone or digital recorder. I'll go through. Nah, nah, nah. Done that before. Done that before. Oh, what's that? That's very unlike me. Okay, let's go that route, you know, stuff like that. So it's always a search for something that is inspiring to to write and to go in that direction. I'm always looking for a new project. I'm always looking for that one piece of music that's different enough to make me go a different direction. I love that. That's awesome to hear. And my favorite part about that is that it's all about the music and what you want to explore, not only as a musician and as an artist, but as a person. It's not driven by business decisions. No. The reason for my downfall was all connected with greed and business. And I, I, I swore that I would never let that happen again. So being the, the goose that laid the golden egg with Comes Alive being the biggest selling record in, in America and Canada for six years. After that, the downfall was was pretty spectacular, as was the rise, you know, and it it definitely um, I paid my dues again. That's the thing I learned. You don't you never stop paying your dues. You're always paying your dues. Is there any particular thing you could have done to protect yourself from that downfall? Yes, but being twenty six years old and having these mega, you know the manager, the agent, the record company was, as far as I was concerned, they were the boss and not me at that point. I, I let them guide me to their agendas. And that was my downfall. I made mistakes as well. I spend a lot of money too. I'm not, I'm not taking myself out of the equation at all. Um, I was 26 and I'm the biggest act in the world. And I kind of thought I was pretty special for about three weeks there until I realized that the day that 
that I, I got the call saying we were already number one for most of the summer. And then the, the day that my manager called me and said, are you sitting down? I said, yeah. And he said, you've just broken the sales record of Tapestry of Carol King, which is the biggest selling record of all time, which was 6.7 million. So that's when I got scared because they wanted, they were talking about a new record halfway through the tour, uh, uh, the Comes Alive tour. Everybody, there's, it's the golden, golden goose again, you know, laid the golden egg. And uh, they wanted another golden egg or two, you know, and the live album was six years worth of material from Humble Pie to all, and then cherry picking my, all my solo records. So there was no way in hell that I was going to be able to write six years worth of material in a few months, you know. So I, I felt like I'd lost before I started. And I should have said what I could have said was no, but I didn't. I didn't know I could say no at that point. Does that make sense? It's just they must know better than me. But in that situation, they'd handled really big acts before, but no one as big as I was at that point. So no one had rules for this situation except my stomach. When I felt that I was, my gut told me, oh, I don't like, I don't want to do this. And then they go, oh, come on, you, you can do another 17 shows in three weeks. Oh, okay, but I'm a little yeah. tired. <laughs> you know Absolutely. what I mean? Do you feel like you trusted them more than you trusted yourself in that moment? Yes, because they had what I thought was the experience. Yeah. And their experience, they forgot all their experience and just went, you should get another record out as quickly as possible. Whereas that's you're as good as your last record. Therefore, why don't we... It's, it's the biggest selling record of all time. Why don't we just wait a little bit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think people are going to forget me at this point for a while. So I wasn't ready. Didn't want to record I'm in you. But I, I, uh, I was weak in my decision to go, on, go along with these people that I trusted. Were you more afraid to go ahead with that from the artistic standpoint or from the business standpoint of success? Like, is it going to live up to the number of sales? Oh, it, it would have only been able to, if it had sold one less than Comes Alive, I knew that I would be, you know, oh, he's, he's, he's fading. Sure. Yeah. Um, so it was all, but I knew that being, I'm not as prolific a writer as some other people might be. Therefore, I knew it was going to take me time to come up with great material again, which is, that's all Comes Alive is. It's, it's the cherry picking of my career to that point. And so that scared me. And then also the fact that um, the money didn't mean anything to me. It never has meant anything to me. Therefore, the business side of it, my, no, my only fear was not coming up with the goods. I'm putting something out there that was subpar. And I did. That's exactly what I did. All right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about DistroKid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. 
If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. A live album. How is a live album the most successful album for somebody? But you kind of answered it in that it was six years of stuff where you just picked out. But it is really incredible to me. There's a handful of live albums. One of my favorite artists of all time is Bela Fleck and the Flecktones. My favorite albums of theirs are their live albums. Is there something... I, I, and I know for some bands, it's like some some people love, especially in the jam world, people love live mm-hmm. Grateful Dead or Dave Matthews Band or Fish recordings. Do you think your music translates better live or is it just the fact that it was an amalgamation of six years of your best material? It was that. It was the six years worth of material. But when, you, when you're live, there's a, it's a whole other ball game in the studio. You go, okay, Pete, time for the solo on this one or the vocal, whatever. And you go out there and you pour your heart out and they say, yeah, that's one more like that. And I think we go, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so it, it's like, um, really? I, I really thought that would be good. And then we touch it up, you know, and then but live, I leave all the advice on the side of the stage. I walk on. I'm totally in control. It's me, my band, and that audience. And I've been in enough bands and learned so much about to communicate with an audience over the years. That, And I bring, I'm a performer. I'm someone that it, it's another, it's almost like another 50%, you know, that you bring, uh, that I bring. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's I, I do. <laughs> and it's um, certain people make incredible studio records, and but I go to see them and I'm bored stiff. And on the other hand, me, my, my studio records, I mean, right now I'm thrilled with them, but in the early days, maybe they weren't quite as powerful as the songs were. But the performance wasn't. So when you when you go on the road and you do them for like three years nonstop, you know, these numbers develop into something else and they get and, and it's the energy that you put out. When I'm when I put on Comes Alive, wherever I put the needle down, because I do have the vinyl, um, and wherever I put that needle down, I smile. Because there's something about what we captured, what we put across, that you can't put a word on it, but that's what we captured. And um, we heard it the week after we recorded at Winterland, which was the lion's share of the album. Um, We went down, Wally Hyder's truck uh, did it, Ray Thompson, uh, rest in peace, and and, a wonderful engineer. So we went down to Wally Hyder's studio in LA. We were going to play Santa Monica Civic, I think, with Rod and or the Forum or something. And... um, he said, come down to the studio and I'll just, I won't do a mix. I'll just put all the faders up, you know, in a line and, and we'll see, see what it is. Well, I remember going there with Bob Mayo, my dear lost friend too, miss him badly, and, and Stanley Sheldon, the bass player. And we went in there and we were standing about three feet from the back wall in the control room. And he put on, I don't know, money or do you feel or one of the more, you know, up ones. And not the volume, but that what that nebulous, whatever that thing is that I said I bring to the we as a band and I bring to that to a live show knocked us backwards. Mm. 
it was like, and we just smiled and we just looked at each other and went, wow, we've got something very special here. We knew right from that moment that we had something that was so much better than anything I'd done before. Wow. I love that. I have a similar experience. So I play in a band called Wolfpack. And Mm. just before the pandemic started, our last concert was live at Madison Square Garden. And we did a live at Madison Square Garden album. And we had our friend shoot the entire concert from stage with a little uh, camera stabilizer just on an iPhone. And that, right. that's the concert film. And to us, it's kind of our, you know, us trying to make a Frampton Comes Alive, a Stop Making Sense Talking Heads, a, you know, our, our version of that. And it felt like when that concert was done, when that concert happened, it felt like climbing Everest. And whenever I listen back to that, like you're saying, wherever I drop the needle, it brings a smile to my face, remembering that moment with some of my best friends mm-hmm. and seeing all of our fa- of seeing our families in the audience and reliving that experience a little bit that's really hard to describe to anybody who hasn't poured their life into a craft. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering for you, you've poured your life into what you're doing and you've had some real mountaintop experiences yourself. What for you has been the most fulfilling moment of your career? That's a hard one. You see, the most fulfilling parts of my career as Peter Franton, and I've done some, you know, wonderful shows and huge venues and you name it, I've been there, done that sort of thing. And um, But the moments to me that mean the most to me are when David Bowie, my school chum, invited me to play on his album and then play guitar with him. We've always, we'd always played a lot of the time, same night, different act. We were both in different acts. So we, 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 we sort of were following each other. And, and I think pl- playing on the Glass Spider tour was something, I was just thrilled that David had finally asked me to complete the circle from when we played acoustics on the art block stairs at, outside my dad's office, because he was the art teacher, David's art teacher. So I'm on stage with David, just enjoying the hell out of it. And, and he gave me a wonderful platform to come back. And what he was doing there was he gave me this wonderful gift. Uh, he could have chosen anybody. I mean, look at all the guitarists he's had, you know. Uh, everybody wanted to play with David. And I never really thought about it because I knew he had his his favorites and whatever. And so he gave me this gift of he knew what had happened, the teeny bopper burnout kind of thing and the lack of credibility, you know, dissipating uh, credibility. And um, uh, he took me around the world with the glass spider in stadiums and arenas and reintroduced me as the guitar player. So Mm. it was the biggest gift anybody has given me in a career. So I have to say that it's almost like my default preferred position is the, is the humble pie position or the playing with David position where there's a incredible singer or front man is there, but I get to play guitar you know, David wanted me to do more background vocals. I said, I can't concentrate. Mm. <laughs> and so I did, I did very little yeah. singing at all on that tour because this is my chance to just be the guitar player again. And it was, that's me, you know, that's, that's my preferred position. 
even just the way that you're talking about it, obviously you had a musical experience that helped with the fulfillment, with the personal fulfillment for you. But also kind of what I think I'm hearing you say is, you know, you grew up with David and there was the friendship aspect of things and there was the personal thing that meant just as much or maybe even more than the music and business side of it. Yeah, David was uh, always like my older brother. I mean, <clears throat> and he had a very strong relationship with my father uh, because my father was head of this art, huge art department in the high school there in South London. And, um, you know, he taught everything from history of architecture to uh, technical drawing, to typography, to painting, to drawing, to you name it. And um, he would he loved teaching. And, of course, when you find a, a couple of students that really are attentive and want to learn more than others, you know, he would probably, you know, focus a little bit more on them maybe, you know, because they were listening. <laughs> and um, so it was David and, um, and George Underwood, who, who's also my dear friend and, and David's lifelong friend. And uh, they were frickin' frack at school, you know. And um, that's the other person. And he did um, Ziggy Stardust cover for David. He's a wonderful, wonderful artist. You know, well, he had a good teacher. Anyway, I, I think that along the way, Dave would always give me, you know, advice, you know, and was always there. He, when I did the last, the first instrumental record, I, Dave, Dave was a sax player first and foremost, you know. He loved sax. And I needed a sax on the opening cut of Fingerprints. And I wanted something avant-garde. I didn't want, you know, to call the regular guys. So I called Dave and I said, Dave, I need, uh, who do you recommend? And he said, oh, man, he said, you've got to, you've got to call Courtney Pine. He's phenomenal. He's just out there. and it's one. So I did. And Courtney sent, sent me a wonderful solo and and we played off each other and everything by not even being with each other um but we did because he was in england and i was i was um here you know so he's always been there to uh to advise me along the way and um you know i go and see him in the elephant man when he was on broadway and we go out to dinner and stuff but um yeah i think on on the glass spider tour when we had the it's in the book but there was heavy smoke. We were we were taxiing down the runway in a private plane, big one. And um, if you if you land in the islands or somewhere, usually you'll see sort of condensation smoke coming out of the air conditioners. You know, yeah. I thought there's nothing to it. Then it got worse and worse and worse. And then uh, and then people started yelling smoke, smoke. And uh, so then. David comes running down the aisle. We stop the plane. They pull the back exit off. And David grabs me and lifts me up. And then as we get to the the slide, you know, he just throws me down there. <laughs> he, he, he wanted to get me off because he said, you know, I could see him thinking, your dad will kill me if I don't get you off yeah. first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so yes yeah. we had a we, we had a sort of family he, and also um a wonderful note it's it's sad but it wonderful note when dad passed david was the first one to call the house so you know that that says it right there he was a, a very very generous man yeah it sounds like you guys had something really special together yeah. mm -hmm. yes we did yeah you have had a long career you've talked about ups and downs in it you have 
obviously, just like you talked about, you have friends that are icons, legends, as artists, as musicians. You've toured, like you said, you were on the road with Steve Miller Band. You've been, you've been on the road. You've been around a lot of successful artists that have had, had long careers. What wisdom do you have for somebody who's been around for a few years and wants to make sure that they can keep it going for the next 20, 30? Well, I, I'd say reinvention, uh, always push, as I said earlier. But I think with a new band, if labels still sign bands, <laughs> if you get signed, they do have resources. Uh, if, uh, um, a new band gets signed by a huge label and, uh, well, they're all huge now because there's only about two of them. Um, so <laughs> um, three, maybe four. Um, but And they sign you, and and my advice to them would always be, they signed you because you're unique, you're something a little bit different, don't let them change you. Oh, because what they'll do is they'll come in and go, well, that's great, we love that, um, what you're doing with that new material, but we really wanted you to sound more like, you know, X. Mm. And that's where I see that's prostitution, you know, and and I would say, don't listen to them. You know, you've got to stick to your guns and, and say, you know, you signed me because you liked us the way we were, yeah. you know, not the way you want us to be. And I think um, that's for new bands. But and, and it's sort of along the same route when you've, you've been around the block a, a couple of times is just to make sure that you're doing what don't. Uh, I, in the 80s, I thought I had to write for the people, mm. not me. And that's where I lost the thread because I was trying to chase my tail. Mm. And I think that when you start writing what you think people might want to hear, you've lost because you've lost your own identity. What you need to do is to get in that creative, when when you are in that output of creation, you know, Sometimes we're in input when we don't write. We think we have a writer's block, but Dylan says that you're actually on input. You're always writing. You just, you can't always be on output because you've got no inspiration, you know? So when you're on in that output area uh, of creation, just push yourself to the limit. That's what I do, rightly or wrongly. But it's got to be something that turns me on first before I want to play it for anybody else, you know? I don't want to know what they want me to write. I want to, I'm going to write what I'm, you know, I'm an artist. You mentioned something in your story about playing with Bowie that I want to touch on. And this is for the guitar players. This, um, mm-hmm. cause you know, we're a guitar podcast. You said you like the role like you did or like, like your role in the herd or your role in Bowie's band where you, you play guitar, you, mm-hmm. you play guitar, you, you serve that role. What advice do you have for guitar players who need to better serve their role in a band, how can you be a better guitar player for another artist? Well, that's a difficult question. Um, you mean they're a, they're a sideman to a, an artist? Yeah, or even... Or they're part of the band? I guess, well, there's, there's both. I mean, when you're, when you're a part of a band, you have a little more creative input because it's the, the ideas of the band you know, can be mm-hmm. working together. When you're a side musician, you're more serving the vision of the artist that's hiring you. So they're both, uh, they're, they are different. But I guess in both situations, how do you approach that? Well, 
with David doing the Glass Spider tour, I, I'm not Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, I'm not Adrian Ballou. I'm not Robert Fripp. But I took what David wanted and I did it in my own style. And he was very open to that because he likes change, you know. Uh, he, he did, you know. So I'm not, if I get hired for a session for, for, for argument's sake, I come in and I play me to their music. And if it's not right, then maybe you should get somebody else because this is my style. I'm not a per se session guy. I'm not going to come in and play exactly what is written because that's, that's not what I do. <laughs> um, I, it's a creation at all, all points, isn't it? You, you want to play something. I want to play something different all the time. But um, when you're in a band, I mean, hopefully you're one of the writers. You're the guitar player and one of the writers. And and so you have a lot more say in the situation there. Maybe you're writing with the singer and the bass player. Who knows? Or maybe you all write together. Um, and that's where the magic happens when you're in a band. That's why I love a band. That's why I love Tumble Pie, because you'd bring in, I brought in, say, Stone Cold Fever uh, riff at the beginning, the intro, and to rehearsals, and we just jammed on it. And then at the end of the day, we had Stone Cold Fever, you know. So, um, and it, that was, it wouldn't have happened if it weren't for those other three guys, yeah. you know. And, it, you know, again, with... Um, Steve would bring in a, a, a piano riff or a guitar riff, and we'd do the same for him. And then, of course, with I Don't Need No Doctor, that was a riff. That was one I was at the sound check at, um, also in the book. We were at the sound check, and my amp, my stack was up and running. And so was Jerry's drums, Jerry Shirley. And I just did an E minor chord. To, in Madison Square Garden, no PA on, just my stack, you know, and it just went, wow. <laughs> and I, I got like, wow, let me do that again. And then I played a G chord and then I played an A chord and then I went back to playing it a little faster. And then that's when Jerry Shirley just went, one, two, three, four, and, and that's when, Greg Ridley, start, he, he got his bass amp on and he started playing that. And then Steve Marriott was at the mixing console and he's coming. It's a long way from the mixing console in Madison Square Garden. Yeah. He's running, he's running, he's running up to the stage and he didn't even bother to put a guitar on. He said, hold on the E, like to, to all of us. He went, I don't need no. That's how it happened. Wow. And we, we arranged it. It's not our song. It's Ashford and Simpson. Yeah. And and obviously Ray Charles did the definitive version uh, in those days, and um, that was it. We rehearsed it, we arranged it, and we did it that night. And Humble Pie did it every night after that. You know, that was it. That was our first breakthrough song. Incredible, that's amazing. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. It really means a lot that you take some time to talk to us about your your life and your career. And I really appreciate everything you do artistically. And uh, it really sounds like you you really have a, a great vision for art in general. So so thank you for everything you do. Well, thank you, Corey. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Hopefully we'll, we'll see you sometime soon. Well, let's do it again. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll, we'll have some guitars in our hands next time. Yes. All right. <laughs> yes! That was such a fun interview for me to do. I am a huge Peter Frampton fan. 
And it was really great to hear some of his stories, hear some of his wisdom. And you know what? Honestly, it's so cool that he is making albums now, that he's been at it, that he keeps at it. And if you're unfamiliar, his new album, Frampton Forgets the Words. <laughs> Such a cool album title. There's a lot of really great cover songs. Everything from George Harrison, Stevie Wonder, David Bowie, Marvin Gaye, Radiohead, Sly and the Family Stone, Alison Krauss. Really cool covers. Check out his new album. And of course, if you're unfamiliar with Frampton Comes Alive, go check that out too, because that is one of the most historic rock albums of all time, in my opinion. Thanks for hanging with us. We'll see you next week. Peace!